This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Hello, and welcome to Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff, the podcast that does what it says in the title. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy, the arbiter of cool people, the arbiter of cool stuff. Also, I discovered today I'm the one who gets to determine who is sick and who is healthy. Mm-hmm. With me today as my guest is a cool person, a bona fide cool person, since I'm the arbiter of cool people. This is a good bit. I'm very excited about this. <laughs> Caitlin Durante, um, best known perhaps for hosting the show, The Bechtel Cast. Caitlin, how are you? I'm pretty good. Thank you. How are you? I'm okay. I've been driving all day, and now I'm podcasting all day. I somehow have two days today. Hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I guess I already asked, how are you? But I'll answer again. I'll elaborate. Okay. <laughs> all right. All right. Let's hear it. Well, you, you said that you get to decide who is sick and who is not, and that's a reference mm-hmm. to when we were talking off mic about how I've been a little sick lately. Yeah. And it's my responsibility to be so, like, just funny and good and charming on mm-hmm. your episode today, or I will stay sick. That'll be yeah. my punishment. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's up to the audience to determine how funny Caitlin is. This is the worst. And luckily, idea. humor is completely objective. Mm-hmm. That's true. So classically, yeah. <laughs> famously, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what. Well, at the end, we'll let it'll be Sophie and I will decide how about oh, that goodness. instead of leaving it to the audience. Yes, our producer uh, and fellow arbiter of illness and well uh, health is <laughs> Sophie. Sophie, how are you doing? I mean, I'm doing well, and I feel like I feel like uh, you know, Caitlin, who does have a master's in screenwriting, will will do really well at. <gasps> um, I mean, I know you don't like to mention it, but we'll do really I well. To. I mean, I, I hate to, but we'll do really well at making us go, ah, and therefore will mm. not have to be unwell. Okay. Like, I feel com- I feel confident that because Caitlin has a master's degree, that this is going to go really well for all of us. I mean, yeah. I've met a lot of people with masters in screenwriting and otherwise who are not good at making people laugh. So it's not, but what I mean is, yeah, yes. I'll be so freaking funny. Okay. That's good. <laughs> good. I'm glad. So to continue our credits, our sound engineer is Ian, and our theme music was written by the esteemable musician known only under the mysterious name Unwoman. Also under other names to her friends. But so, Caitlin, you have a yes. master's degree in screenwriting, is what I hear. Yeah, yeah. That makes you kind of an expert on film stuff. And last time we had you on, we talked about film stuff. Max Shrek, who mm-hmm. since that recording, uh, we did a Bechtel cast episode on Batman Returns, which <gasps> famously has a character played by Christopher Walken named Max Shrek. Mm. The character was named after the actor. Whoa. Who we discussed mm-hmm. at cool. length. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I watched a Nosferatu since the last time I saw you. I watched nice. the... And Who's not that? you did not watch Twilight, so you will not get Caitlin and I's <gasps> jokes. That still continues to be true. No, instead <laughs> I had to watch like something like, mm, okay, who's the 
the director who likes getting shot on camera and jumping into things full of cactuses and making documentaries about how terrible the world is. Deadpan German. Deadpan German. What? I'm like, oh, um, oh my gosh. His name, he did Grizzly Man and stuff. Yeah, I think so. Oh, what is his name? I normally, this is like a name I normally know in my daily life. Same. Uh, it's, um, oh, I am Googling it because I have to know. Oh, it's Werner. Ver- Werner, it's Werner Herzog. Yeah, Werner Herzog. Yeah. I watched the Werner Herzog um, Nosferatu since last one. Okay. How but, was it? I really liked it, but then I watched 1971's The Devils based on the Aldous Huxley book, and like, this makes me sound like I'm very much like an old film buff, which is, uh, I'll pretend like it's true, in order to get <laughs> the cred and mm-hmm. viewed as pretentious that that will allow me to have access to. But every, every all the other movies I watched this like last week got kind of wiped away by The Devils. Um, it was really good. Hmm. But this time, we're not talking about film stuff. I just <sighs> like having you on. Thank you so much. Today, we're going to talk about labor union hobos who traveled around the U.S. on freight trains and later in RVs who were printers and printed newspapers. No kidding. I also have a master's degree in that. So, <laughs> Wait, I don't know. I, if you're I'm the right that. guest for this episode <laughs> also. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> master's degree in freight train riding. (laughs) Yeah. Excellent. So these tramp printers laid out a ton of the newspapers that did a ton of the political shit that made a ton of things happen in this country. Lots of good things and bad things. Mm -hmm. They were the hard drinking, hard fighting, hard cussing, book reading, lonely road, rail riding, short living, morally complicated, and not boring tramp printers. All right. But first, have you ever heard of a printing press? I have heard of a printing press, yes. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> um, I got I to gotta talk. In order to talk about these people, I thought I'd be able to like cut right in to be like, and then they had a union and then they did this stuff. And then like slowly I realized that the like the physical form of printing really ties into a lot of stuff about their culture. So we got a flashback to like yeah. 1541. That's the my guess for the date that a printing press was invented. Well, there might have been a printing press invented, but it is not when the printing presses we're talking about were invented. Okay. 1439 is the main European one, I think. It's in my script, and so therefore I totally know it, and I don't ever <laughs> forget things. I'm mm-hmm. like a whatever animal it is that doesn't forget things. Um, that's that was a good bit. That's a joke. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So on some level, printing seems like a chore that is just part of what we read, right? It's part of the process of making things. Mm-hmm. Um, but printing is really the core of media and mass communication and like the origin of mass communication. Without handset type, there wouldn't be mass literacy, at least in the Western world. There was uh, a good amount of literacy in the Eastern world, Um going back a thousand years before Europe figured out how to read without using movable type, even though they had movable type, whatever, I'm getting ahead. Mm -hmm. Europe was kind of a backwater of the world until people there figured out that they could colonize everyone and be monsters. And movable type, like a lot of things, was first invented in what is now China, or I guess was China at the time too, in the 11th century. A guy named Bi Sheng mostly used porcelain, but he also used wood, and he made movable type with all of the different characters and stuff. And it didn't really catch on at the time. He invented it, and it was used for some stuff, but it wasn't like, it didn't replace woodblock cutting. Mm-hmm. Pretty quickly, uh, some folks in China and then some folks in Korea figured out metal movable type, started using it. Again, didn't really take off. Basically, woodblock printing with whole pages carved at a time stayed the the normal way of printing stuff. And there's lots of, like, reasons why this is, but, like, a lot of history that has to do with Western historians writing about Asian history. Everyone's, like, not really sure if they're being objective, or I'm not really sure who's being objective in these histories. Mm -hmm. Sure. It seems like it didn't catch on, basically, because it, like, wasn't 
necessary uh, based on the way that typography worked and like the way that the written languages worked in the different places. Uh-huh. So for like a thousand years, the Eastern world was using woodblock printed books and they were doing quite well while Europe was still scribbling away by candlelight with quill and ink. And mm-hmm. so once again. That's how I send my tweets out. It's quill and ink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that, um, (laughs) yeah, you know, I feel like at this point, tweets are probably about as long as I, I used to handwrite all my, like, fiction. No kidding. Yeah, I, I couldn't imagine doing that anymore. Mm -mm. I don't know. Because of a man named Johannes Gutenberg. I don't know if I said his first name right. He was probably born around the year 1400. And... I'm really annoyed because I was like, oh, I'm going to do this deep dive on Gutenberg for this part of this episode. He's really boring. Oh, really? Like, <laughs> yeah. As far as I can tell. Maybe someone will prove me wrong. Uh, but everything I've read about him, not like the most interesting guy. One of the most influential figures in history, like kind of up there with like Jesus and Muhammad in terms of mm-hmm. like pure cultural impact, you know? But um, by... The mid-1400s, he was like, hey, guys, I've got an idea. And he changed basically everything about the world ever since. Not necessarily for the better, because Europe no longer being a backwater has actually worked out really badly for everyone. (laughs) Right. But he certainly changed the world. (laughs) Okay, as a tangent. I used to stay in the squat in Amsterdam years ago, and there was this this little piece of graffiti that said, change the world, make it worse. (laughs) Um, and then someone <laughs> changed it to make change the world, make it horsey instead of worse. But okay, nice. Anyway, I every now and then I think about that when I'm feeling really cynical. Is change the world, make it worse, which is what Gutenberg managed to do. Maybe uh-huh. I don't know. Whatever. I'm not trying to put a moral judgment on this particular character. He invented movable type again, sort of in 1439. I'm Historians sure it was like a 1541 or whatever date I said. But oh, right. Yes. Sorry. Let's 1540. go with yours. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Well, for now, we'll go on the wrong one, the one that I got off of Fair. a couple different sources. Yeah. Um, I didn't ask you. I, sh- I should have asked you. Mm-hmm. So historians like to argue about whether or not movable type found its way over from China or whether it was like invented whole cloth separately. Um, there's a couple other people who were like, no, I swear I invented it at the same time over in the Netherlands. It just didn't like take off, right? Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people were like thinking about these concepts at the same time. And Gutenberg, of course, also didn't, like, solely invent it. He was working with a bunch of other people whose names are forgotten from history who I didn't feel like writing into my script, so they will continue to be forgotten. Mm-hmm. And he still did a lot, no matter what. He got into movable type. And he also invented an alloy of lead, tin, and antimony called type metal that was very good to cast type out of, basically, like, mm-hmm. making, you know, casting each individual letter so that you can print with it. Sure. He developed really neat ways of casting type. He developed oil-based inks that did a really good job of printing. And just like all around, good job, Gutenberg. He, he took things further than anyone else had taken them, as far as I can tell. Mm-hmm. And this time, movable type, it takes off. Within a decade, it's all over Europe. You've got this massive explosion of media and literacy and all kinds of neat shit. The most famous thing he did is in that 1455 or, you know, before he even invented this in 1541. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He printed the Gutenberg Bible, which was the first typeset Bible, which probably did a lot for people being Christians, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, yeah. The printing press first reached Mexico in the 1500s. It first reached what became later the U.S. in early 1600s uh, when a woman actually started the first printing press in the United States, Elizabeth Glover. Feminist icon. I know. And like many medieval feminist icons or Renaissance feminist icons or whatever, she became uh, in charge of things through the old-fashioned method of her husband dying. Mm-hmm. Her husband was like, we're taking this print and press to America, babe. And she was like, all right, that's cool. And then on the boat over... He mysteriously died. I don't actually think she murdered him, but I wish she had. That would have been more interesting. I like that headcanon, though. Yeah. And so, you know, he probably died of smallpox because it's the 17th century. Right. So 
women have been involved in printing since the beginning of printing, basically. Uh, before it was the U.S., the first woman editor of a newspaper was named Katerina Zenger, who took over the business from her husband. And this time she took over because he was in jail for printing, like, pamphlets critical of the governor. And then later he uh-huh. died. And so she okay. became the first uh, woman editor of a newspaper. Mm-hmm. Western world gets a hold of the printing press, and printing they did. And the thing that's really interesting is that for fucking hundreds of years, more or less until the 1880s, the basic idea of how printing was done didn't change. Hmm. Like, it was a stationary, and not entirely, right? There was, like, different things people developed. But overall, more or less like a mature technology for, like, 400 years. Okay. You know, when it's not broke, don't fix it. Yeah. Until... Whatever, 1880s, and then fix it. Yeah. (laughs) And, yep. (laughs) Wow, amazing contribution, Caitlin. I'm killing it and being so funny and charming and hilarious. Yeah, you're totally going to get your cold cured. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, don't worry. Thank you, Sophie. (laughs) Yeah. Get a little laughter. (laughs) I don't know why we're doing this bit where if you don't perform... (laughs) <laughs> you stay sick. You invented the bit, <laughs> Margaret. So I know, but but why did you let me? I thought <laughs> you were in charge. No, this is no. Yeah, you're okay. the arbiter of accountability. Uh, so interesting. Oh, so, oh yeah. Oh, <laughs> not funny, Caitlin. <laughs> oh, boo. So, oh no, I feel so sick. <laughs> <laughs> So, the way that people set type for hundreds of years, going back to Gutenberg, is that typesetters would spell out each word letter by letter. Have you ever seen a type case, like an actual physical object that holds type? I have no idea how common of a thing this is. I don't think in real life, but I feel like I've seen it in a movie, maybe at the end of like Little Women or something like that. Yeah, probably. <laughs> You know, and it's funny, too, to me, because, like, um, a lot of the, like, little, like, knick-knack shelves that people have in their house, like, the little tiny knick-knack shelves with little tiny squares mm. cut out of it or whatever, right? Like, I think, actually, a lot of them are literally type cases, like, wooden cases, like, trays meant for holding mm. type. Yeah. And certainly that, that's an easy way to imagine a type case. And this is where uppercase and lowercase letters come from, is, like, literally the capitals were in the uppercase and the... The non-capitals were in the lowercase. So you pull out a letter, one at a time, and you put it upside down and backwards onto something called a compositing stick, which is a little stick that you can fit type into. Mm -hmm. You do it one line at a time until it goes into an iron frame uh, called a chase, and you fill everything, all the rest of it up with like blocks of wood or different slugs of lead and all this other shit in order to like Mm -hmm. fill it all up, right, to do the layout. And then that gets inked and printed. And some folks still do this. Uh, I got to do it once. I used to have business cards. I'm totally not pretentious. I used to have business cards that I like, yeah. I use my friend's letterpress to um, handset all the type on my fucking okay. business cards. Did that cards. take a very long time? Yeah, it's like, I don't have the longest name in the world. I don't even remember. I mean, I didn't know what I was doing. And my poor friend had to like sit over my shoulder and be like, no, you're doing it wrong like several times. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. Didn't didn't take an hour just to lay out my name or whatever, you know? Yeah, I guess a business card doesn't have a lot of text on it. Yeah. Unless I get into, like, the Dr. Bronner-style business cards or something, you know? Which, food for thought. Yeah. If someone handed me a business card and it was, like, full of indecipherable, complicated uh, theology, I'd probably be more interested in... <laughs> Uh, what am I inviting into my life? So, <laughs> typesetting is a nasty business. Mm. In the colonial era, and actually for a long, long time, presses were cleaned with urine to get the and lye <gasps> and all kinds of stuff you don't really want to hang out Who's with. Who's urine? I don't know, and I wish I did, and nothing I immediately read would tell me. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether it's animal urine or whether, like, a lot of these printers drank a lot of beer, so it could have just been their urine. I, <laughs> I don't know. 
in dark unventilated basements is where you were working. Okay. They'd be like lit by like whale oil lamps or kerosene, depending on the era. Sometimes these rooms are 130 degrees because of all the type molten crap that they're fucking dealing with. Yeah. Typesetters would hold lead type in their mouths in order, you know, in the same way that you like hold a nail while you're being a car- cartoon character on a ladder with a hammer. Right, right, right. So they're getting lead poisoning. They're breathing in piss fumes. It's yeah. hot. It's, you know, there's flammable lamps. Yeah. Getting knocked over, I'm guessing. Yeah. Yeah, actually, that gets to, <laughs> that gets to someone I'm going to mention. <laughs> in the 1800s, at one point, it, uh, it was estimated that 12% of printers had a, had the symptom spits blood. <gasps> What's that? I don't know. He just spitting some blood up every now and then. He's like, oh, whoops, oh. hold on. I got to spit some oh. blood up. <laughs> Which I've seen a movie. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever seen a movie. But Mm-mm. if someone is coughing, they might die. If someone is spitting up blood, they are not even making it to the last act of the film. They're, they're already dead. Yeah. And that's what I will get sick with if I'm not funny enough. Yay! It spits blood, my hardcore band. So they uh, contracted friend of the pod tuberculosis at about mm-hmm. twice the rate of everyone else, which was saying something because everyone else got a lot of tuberculosis in the 19th <laughs> right? century. Uh-huh. And the presses themselves were crazy dangerous. Like at one point, it was like like they would like eat fingers, you know? Like, um, because why? It's just like you get your finger in the wrong way and like, whoops, it gets sliced off oh, or the whatever. Pre- Sorry, press, I thought yeah. you were talking about the people who worked mm. at the press and they were just, just zombie printing. <laughs> just pure <You> zombies. The- <laughs> That's why You're- all the printers roamed is they needed new flesh to eat. <laughs> so you, it's like that movie... Um, Oh my gosh, this would have been a good joke if I could have thought of the title of the movie I just saw two days ago. Oh no, Caitlin, are you coughing? Something. <laughs> you can't get the joke out. It's the blood, bones and all, bones and all. Well, that's a good name for a movie. I've never heard of it. Um, it's about like cannibal, like mm. early 20s cannibal people Okay. Falling in love. Aww. Anyway, so you're speaking of the machine itself eats people's fingers. Yeah. Not the people. Are not the people. people probably not sense. eating a ton of fingers. Like, can't say okay. never. Sure. But you know what else won't eat your fingers? You don't know that. You know He's... what else probably <laughs> won't eat your fingers most of the time? Approved. Is it the products and services you're it about to hear about? It is. And if it's one of those true crime podcasts about people who eat people, then I was wrong. And we didn't authorize it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> here's some podcasts. Uh, no, here's some ads, usually for podcasts. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX Anniversary Sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. Live Nation presents Concert Week. 
Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. And we are back. Kaylin, what'd you think of those uh, fine goods and services? Oh, my favorites. Yeah, they're so good. Except for the terrible ones. Yeah, yeah. Which is a lot of them. So the other ways that printers would die... Uh, Sometimes they would dry the type, like the ink, over flame. And sometimes, for some odd reason, drying ink on paper over flame would um, ignite. Huh? Uh, Yeah. And so that wasn't very good. Mm. Um, And then my other weird self-insert about printing into this episode is that I apprenticed as a a printer for one summer once when I was bored. And, Mm -hmm. And the first day I showed up, Charles Oberbeck, who wrote the book Tramp Printers, which is a lot of what I'm pulling from. It's a very good book. Uh-huh. He was like, you need to tie your hair back. If that falls into the machine, it will rip your hair out of your scalp. <gasps> so, and that's the modern offset printers. That's not, so, I don't know whether people okay. were losing their hair or not. I can't speak to that part. I mean, if they're losing fingers, they're probably losing hair. Yeah, totally. So, the life expectancy for printers from about 1800 to 1850 was a, uh, you want to guess? <laughs> this one. Was it like 37 years old? Oh, that's so optimistic. <laughs> Is it less? 28 years old. I guess old. probably the average lifespan that during that time was 37. So let's say 20, 26. Yeah, it was 28 years old. Okay. Uh, that's how yeah. long printers were lasting. Later... They get unionized, and we'll talk about that part of the story in a little bit. And their life expectancy went up dramatically, so much so that by 1892, the average printer lived to be 41 years old. Wow. Good for them. Yeah. So printing was actually this very no-future job. It was very punk rock in all of the negative ways, (laughs) you know? Uh Hell yeah. Uh, Printing was fairly cheap, all told, during this time. Uh, with this style of printing. You could start a press without a ton of capital compared to a lot of other business ventures. So presses followed the westward expansion across the U.S. as part of the great colonial project that Mm -hmm. I don't really have very many positive things to say about. Mm -hmm. Often mere days after a town or something would show up, ox-drawn carts would bring hand presses out to the frontier, and some of which were up and running and like printing that town's newspaper before buildings were erected to house the presses because the huh. presses are these like giant hulking industrial machine not giant hulking but like they're sturdy right sure so you can you can have it out in the weather a little bit and at yeah, least I've some seen of the, the beginning models. of Paddington too i've seen a printing press yeah totally and i've <laughs> know who Paddington Bear is i for those listening, That's it took great. a full 26 minutes for Caitlin to reference <laughs> Paddington, and that is a new record, my friends. How long do you think it'll take until I reference Titanic? Oh, it's right oh, now. There it just happened. <laughs> we just, well, we actually already talked about Shrek, huh? Although in a different way. We talked. We have about yet Max to speak Shrek. of the green ogre Shrek. Who was also or Slash, have that come up after. organically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so one of the other dangers of printing presses was that you could say stuff with printing presses very easily. Yeah. And some people don't like it when you talk shit, but it's a very good machine for talking shit. A lot of people started getting shot and stabbed over what they said in their papers, especially in the U.S. Mm -hmm. frontier, especially when they were saying stuff like, maybe pretending like you own people is a bad thing. Mm. So, I don't know if you knew this, but the entire U.S. had this whole big argument about that concept at one point. It got kind of violent. Yeah, yeah, I remember. I was there. No, I wasn't there. (laughs) So, take, for instance, Susan B. Anthony's brother. He was a newspaper editor named Daniel Reed Anthony. He moved to Kansas, and he set up an anti-slavery newspaper because 
he wanted to, and that is a good thing to want to do and a good thing mm. to do. So he's mm -hmm. our first named cool person who did cool stuff in this episode. Nice. His first week running that paper, living in Kansas, he was attacked three times by pro-slavery mobs. Mm. And that motherfucker, he spent his life walking around with two horse pistols on his waist. What is a horse pistol? You might ask. I was just going to ask. I had to ask. I asked the internet. A horse pistol is this old-timey pistol that's so large that you can't comfortably carry it at your waist. You carry it on your horse in the oh. saddle, alongside the saddles. Just a big old pirate gun. And Now, do you think that when you saw that bit of graffiti in, you said Amsterdam? Oh, And it uh -huh. said, like, for, originally it mm -hmm. said, what was it, like... Change the world, make it worse. Change the world, make it worse. And then someone change, changed that to, said, to say, make it horsey. Do you think that's what they meant by make it horsey? Probably. To, to introduce some horse pistols. Yeah, it was actually a, um, uh, a big uh, pro-Second Amendment uh, movement in Amsterdam where they said, we mm -hmm. should amend things so that we can carry horse pistols. Yeah. Very specific argument that they, that they were making. Mm -hmm. So our guy... Daniel Reed Anthony, he, uh, he carried two of them at his waist, even though they specifically were designed for being too big to carry at your waist. Uh-huh. And the two of them, I think, I think these are single-shot pistols. This is like long enough ago, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think that, I think that's why he is too. It's not so that he's like dual-wielding them anime style, but the whole thing has a very anime vibe of like two oversized guns. Mm-hmm. He also got into arguments with other publishers. There was a rival pro-slavery publisher who called him a coward. Daniel Reed Anthony, not being a coward, challenged him to a duel. I am not coming in one way or the other about the duel argument and masculinity and autonomy and all kinds of weird shit. Sure. He dueled the guy uh, yeah. and shot him to death in the street. Okay. And was acquitted at trial. I'm pretty sure his defense was we were dueling. It's Kansas. Leave me alone. <laughs> Um, I feel like that was a valid defense back in the day. Yeah. yeah. During the Civil War, after he'd shot a one pro-slavery guy to death, he volunteered and joined the cavalry. And so he probably was able to, at this point, start keeping his horse pistols on his horse because he was in the cavalry. Sure. Mm -hmm. He later, he gets out and he goes back to Kansas and he keeps publishing papers. Uh, a rival publisher shoots him in the chest, not in a duel, just ambushes him. And well, that's shoots illegal. Him, I know. Shoots you him three shoot people. <laughs> When you're dueling. I know, legally. consensual shooting. <laughs> yeah. When you're dueling, you know what you're getting into. You're like, I might be shot, I might shoot someone, yeah. but we're both, it's two consenting parties. Yeah, well, I think that that's what Kansas was, was a, a violence consent state. Where <laughs> if, if, you're, if you have an uh -huh. opinion pro or anti-slavery in Kansas, you are consenting mm -hmm. to shoot or be shot by the other side. Yeah. So he survives getting shot right next to the heart. And like, uh, everyone thought he was dead. And he was like, no, I'm not dead. I'm fucking <laughs> Daniel Reed Anthony. And so he kept publishing a bunch of dangerous shit. And another paper during all of this stuff, there was like, he was not the only newspaper editor. It was like shooting and getting shot during all this. He's just the one who I found most interesting. Mm -hmm. Another paper at the time wrote that someone should quote, stuff and preserve a specimen Kansas editor before the race becomes extinct altogether because they were all dying so much. Who knew that between having to work in weird little basements covered in piss <laughs> <laughs> while you're spitting up blood yeah. and getting shot all the time for the rhetoric that you're printing that it would be one of the most dangerous professions of the time yeah i didn't know that yeah and like a a real like rough and tumble job and yeah. and one of the things that's going to come up a little bit later but at the time newspaper editors mostly came out of being typesetters rather mm. than later once typesetting became a less specialized craft with the additional addition additional machinery more mm. and more typesetters were coming out of like journalism school and sure. I'm, I'm not making an opinion about this um but basically, it was like, well, you had to be a weird rough and tumble typesetter in order to end up being a newspaper editor for a while. Hmm. So 
They should make a movie about that anyway. No, and actually, yeah. Like the cowboys of the West, but they're the typesetters. <laughs> typesetters. Yeah. Now these people like this is like why I like picked this topic because I had heard little bits and hints because the person I apprenticed under wrote the book about them and would talk about them sometimes, you know? And mm. I would like hear these little bits and hints of this like culture that I had no idea about. And no one I this is not a not to be like, oh, I've uncovered this forgotten, but it's just like it's it's just not the shit we talk about, you know? No. It's yeah. not within the specific mythos of like the Wild West that people talk about. Mm-mm. So there was another enemy that editors and printers faced, which was uh, capitalist exploitation. And yeah, I've heard of it. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad that this is a, it's a relic of the 19th century. It's long gone. <laughs> yeah. Thank goodness it's no longer with yeah. us. Yeah. They figured out a, a way to fight against that, and which brings us to some of the coolest and some of the well, the big one fuck off uncool part of what we're going to talk about is their labor union. Dun, dun, dun. That's my, like, cliffhanger, even though I'm about to go into it. This isn't the end of the episode. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. So, in 1786, we're going back in time again. Mm. The U.S. didn't even have a constitution yet. That would come next year. It had only had its name, the United States of America, for 10 years. And mm-hmm. so some printers in Philadelphia, they were like, we're being treated like shit, and we don't like it. And a couple years earlier, some printers in New York had been like, we're being treated like shit. We don't like it. If you don't pay us more, we'll walk off the job. And the editors have been like, all right, well, here's some money. And so they tried to do the same thing in Philadelphia. They were like, we're being treated like shit. We want a dollar a day. Because at the time, a lot of laborers were getting paid by the day. And you had this like nasty thing that employers would do, where if you're paying someone by the day, you hire them during the summer when the days are long, and then you fire them in the winter when the days are short. Oh, yeah. Rude. And so the printers were getting that happening. And they were like, look, we want a dollar a day. And they went on strike. Only they didn't use the word strike because it was so long ago that strike wasn't used in that context in the U.S. yet. It became a, in case anyone was curious, it became a verb in 1768 when English sailors struck, which is probably a reference to them taking down the sails, striking the sails. Oh, sure. And it's likely that it didn't become a noun, like a strike, until uh, a long time later. But I don't know. I mean, I do know I read some etymology about it, but I'm not sure I entirely <laughs> believe it. The thing I read claimed it wasn't until the 1800s that people used it as a noun. and But it was like, well, it was a verb, like, 100 years before that. Anyway, whatever. Mm-hmm. I know you really came here for the etymology of strike. So what they did, they called did. a turnout. And turnout they did. And they won. Mm-hmm. And this was America's first labor strike as America. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it was won. Uh, apparently fairly handily. All right. Nice. And so they start being like, printers are like, oh, we, we stick together. Right? And they already had kind of a guild model going on, sort of based on the craft guilds that you would have, like the medieval guild system with apprenticeships and all that shit, right? Mm-hmm. And, but as like, unionizing started kind of coming around. They were like, we're going to form a union. And it started off informally, like a lot of good things do. They agreed that they would never give up their right to strike. And they went for a long apprentice. They like coalesced and held strong this idea of printers would have a long apprenticeship program before they would like become guild members or union members or whatever. And they emphasized being like really good at the work and taking pride in a job well done instead of just like just being laborers or whatever. Mm-hmm. They also worked for closed shops, basically being like, no, everyone who works in the shop must be a member of the union. They also worked to keep printing a sort of secret society, which had actually been going on for hundreds of years. There's this whole weird, ironic, and kind of interesting thing I want to know more about at some point, where with the history of printing in the Western world, most information about printing passed by word of mouth rather than the printed Print? word. Yeah. <gasps> And that's irony. I know. I mean, I think it is. I got, my brain got <laughs> broken when two people told me, when I was a teenager, and they told me that Alanis Morissette's song, Ironic, isn't ironic. And so then I just stopped comprehending <laughs> the word irony. Being able to even have the capacity to understand what irony is. Yeah, I I'm, I know. I'm, I'm like, is this irony? I still don't quite know. I don't fucking so wait, know. So there was like a Freemasons, but for like printers? Yeah, basically. Wow. Cool. 
Teenage Margaret's mind would have been blown. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> and isn't that ironic? Uh, Maybe. Sorry. I don't think it's so. It's probably not sardonic. I feel like I have a stronger handle on that, which is like sarcastic. Oh, see, irony. I don't even know what sardonic means even a little bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know that? You're unsick. That was funny. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, Grimly. I'm not even joking, though. Grimly mocking or cynical. Well, that describes me quite a bit. Gonna, so. That's why it's Yeah, you're funny. fairly sardonic. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. thank I'm like, you. That is yeah. your personality I mean, thanks. most yeah. days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. I was glad I had listened to Bechdelcast before I came on to Bechdelcast. Because <laughs> I was like, ah, I see. This is the dry humor. Which I really like. I really like dry humor, but. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. So, U.S. printers, they, they took this closed shop mentality seriously, and they distributed rat lists, which was that everyone who worked for too cheap um, or otherwise betrayed everyone else. Because if you took a printing job for less than the going rate, you fuck up everyone's ability to get that rate, right? So these were like the, the scabs. Yeah, basically. exactly. And it was kind of before, this came about even before they were a union, I believe. So it wasn't even okay. quite scabbing because they weren't necessarily like, working on a place that was on strike. Mm -hmm. But just basically, if you were like working for cheap as a printer, you were a fucking rat. Right. And if you taught non-union workers how to print, you would be ostracized, shit-talked, or just jumped. And that actually will tie back into the really messy thing about all of this. Got it. Can't wait. Eventually, they created the National Typographical Union in 1852, which was the first national trade union in the U.S. And... The union was so old school that it stuck to a bunch of medieval shit, I think left over from it being basically a guild. The local union was called a chapel. And the chapel okay. elected a father as the chairman, who was the most senior member of the shop. Okay. What about a mother? <laughs> well, <Doesn't sound> like... <laughs> we'll talk. Actually, this isn't the big route. They did let women in. Okay. But first... Do you know who else has a craft or profession that they operate within a marketplace in order to feed themselves and other people and then advertise the things that they create on podcasts? I thought you were going to say, you know who else let women in. That's where I thought you were going with that. That's the Highway State Patrol who... Oh, yeah. (laughs) I don't think it's advertised on this show in a very long time. Maybe never on this one. No, we I we actually were able to get them removed. It just okay. took an absurd amount of time, and we had no power over it, and it made yeah. me very unhappy. Yeah, I'm so tired. Well, all of the ads that you're about to listen to were handpicked by Caitlin Durante, and yeah. if you have any problem <laughs> morally, yeah, ethically, problems. whatever the difference between those two words is, speaking of words, I don't know the difference between I use all the time. Oh, good question. You can talk to Caitlin Durante about your problems with the ads that are now about. To be heard and you can you. tweet at her at, at I write okay. Yeah. Yes, and that's exactly. okay like Oklahoma, not okay like spelled out. Yeah. Okay. All hey. complaints at I write okay. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. Big screen. I want to be remembered for just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent, only in theaters May 17th. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. 
Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. And we are back. Yeah, so your father was the most senior member of your shop most most of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know whether or not any specific ones had mothers or whether women in that role got called fathers anyway. The cool thing, I don't know if you knew this, but sometimes we're written out of history and they only talk about boys. What? I, I've never heard that before. Yeah, I mean, that would be a massive... Was that me being sardonic? I still don't understand quite. <laughs> <laughs> See, now I don't know if you're being sardonic when you say that. I don't know. <laughs> or am I being ironic? I don't know. I don't, I don't know. We should ask the expert. What if one or, day we get... Uh, I was going to say, or are you just giving people the ick? We don't know. Sardonic, <laughs> ironic, the ick? We don't ick? know. I think Caitlin's sardonic. I think Caitlin is sardonic as well. I take that as a huge compliment. Thank yeah. you. It's intended well, this one. you don't give me the ick, and I haven't seen you being ironic in the last four minutes. So yeah. I'm going to go with sardonic. Yeah. Okay, cool. Process of elimination. Yeah. This is going to be the thing that we get the most random internet people giving us feedback on, on anything yeah. we've done on the show. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Someone's um. Honest. Actually, sardonic <laughs> means blah 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 blah. Yeah. Also, um, Alanis Morissette. Somebody. Some. I'm like. Oh. Yeah. Again, at I write okay on Twitter. Yeah. That is where you can send that feedback. Yeah. And if you want to get through I write okay's uh, spam filters, you have to. Um, the secret code is you look up the word pedant, and then you put the copy and paste the definition of the word pedant into it. And then it'll... <laughs> okay. All right. Which wasn't a slight at I read, okay. It was a slight about people who have a problem with, okay, whatever, anyway. All right, so all of this should have ruled. All this stuff about the union, like, they sound fucking cool as hell. And I started off this episode researching it being like, hell yeah, these people rule. Um, They did a lot of good stuff. They supported strikes. They organized legal defense funds. They built retirement homes for their union printers. They soon Mm -hmm. became the international typographical union when they started including Canadian printers. They struck for the shorter hour workday for decades. They lost the fight for the nine hour workday in 1887, but they won the eight hour workday in 1907 after organizing strikes all across the country. And this paved the way for other trades to win the same concessions. So they did all of this amazing groundbreaking work. They were mm-hmm. one of the first unions to let women in. Uh, they absorbed the Women's Typographical Union of New York in 1871. And the logic they used makes sense. They were like, well, if we allow women into the union, then women won't be hired as scabs, you know, mm-hmm. um, because they're with us, right? And and most of what I'm talking about today, the, most of the stuff that's woven into the history is mostly about individual men, but there were women there too for a lot of printing presses through a couple of the different decades that I'll be talking about. The majority of printers were women. Um, they were a minority of the tramp printers. They still did do that, but mm. for a lot of, well, basically women didn't have a fucking, never have an easy time in the workplace. And so they faced a lot of harassment in the workplace. And so, like, randomly going to new shops all the time as a tramp printer meant exposing yourself to harassment on the road and meant exposing yourself to a whole new set of people. Um, Just like being a comedian, like a woman in comedy. Yeah. Going on the road, everyone's being gross at you. (sighs) Anyway. <laughs> well, clearly you must have been doing it in the 19th century because now that would never happen. <laughs> exactly. If you imagine yeah. it happening, you're wrong and incorrectly assessing <laughs> the amount of harassment mm. that you're receiving. Yes. Um, 
it somehow I wish I knew what time they stopped using gas for gas lights so I could somehow tie this in a little bit more efficiently because no one got gaslit in the 20th century because it was electrical. That's my joke. I'm desperately trying to make jokes as if I'm the one who's going to get sick if I fuck this up. (laughs) Well, you know what? The tables have turned. Oh, fuck. (laughs) Caitlin Durante decides who lives and dies. (laughs) Yeah, put that on a t-shirt. No, please don't. That would be horrible. (laughs) So... One thing that was cool, by the women in the union were given equal pay, same as men. 150 fucking years ago, printing women in the Damn. union had the same equal pay. For white women. That's the bad part. This is the part that we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. Here's where the story gets shitty. They didn't let black people into the union for a long mm. time. I've run across conflicting information about this in a couple books. Like, as best as I can tell... Uh, For the first very long time, at least for the first 70 years of the union, they either explicitly excluded black workers from joining or they have allowed individual locals to choose to exclude black workers. My guess is the former, but I have read things that make both claims. Okay. The the black author who, anything I've ever read by him for this show has just been a fucking hit and is like amazing. Uh, W.B. Dubois wrote about this Mm -hmm. in 1918. Um, And this is in a magazine that on the front says is union printed. Quote, Hmm. I carry on the title page, for instance, of this magazine, the union label. And yet I know, and every one of my Negro readers knows, that the very fact that this label is there is an advertisement that no Negro's hand is engaged in the printing of this magazine, since the International Typographical Union systematically and deliberately excludes every Negro that it dares for membership, no matter what his qualifications. And I feel like that really cuts at what's really important is now the label union made means white made Mm -hmm. in this union that tries to be the union of printers in the entire country. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is awful on a ton of levels. Like one, it's awful because fuck them for not allowing black people into their union. Yeah. And second of all, it makes everything they did that should have been really cool be really shitty. Yeah, Because closed shop unions are an important part of labor organizing practices, right? Where you have to be union in order to work certain industries. If, you're, mm-hmm. if your closed shop union is racist, then it's systematically excluding people from entire industries. And it's not just any industry. Printing was the only form of mass communication for most of this time. Of course, black folks printed anyways, just not in the ITU. And since the Mm -hmm. ITU tried to maintain a monopoly over print shops, it put them in conflict. In the ITU's 1869 and 1870 conventions, this whole thing was angrily and fiercely debated. And a a sizable minority of people wanted to not be a bunch of fucking racists. Mm -hmm. They lost out. And they used a peculiar and shitty and hypocritical logic of how they excluded black people. The first person who was specifically excluded for race was Frederick Douglass's son, L.H. Douglass. Uh, he tried mm-hmm. to join the union. And the argument against letting him was, look, this has nothing to do with race. We're not racists. It's just that he's a rat and we hate him. Because he was a rat because he had worked printing jobs. Because he wasn't allowed without, to yeah. be in the union. Which was, the inverse of this is exactly the argument that they used about why they let women in right? Because they didn't want women to be rats, so they let them in. And I really don't like this. It just makes me really angry. I like, I discovered this like, um, like three quarters of the way through researching this topic. And I'm so angry. I'm so pissed off. (laughs) It does really taint things. Yeah. And I know that the national organization did not pass a resolution um, that some folks tried to pass stopping racial discrimination. And I don't know whether or not individual locals let in black people because I know there were black tramp printers because a couple of them came up in the reading, but they were likely mm-hmm. from the later, the 20th century uh, incarnation of tramp printing, which was also through okay. the ITU, the, the union, but it was a different time. And I can't find when the union started letting black people in. My guess is somewhere between the 20s and the 50s, 
because that's when most of the less radical American labor unions start to reckon with their racism. Mm. And I do know that they were like on the side of some splits within the labor movement that were like the good and less racist side of some splits in like the 20s and 30s. And it's like, I feel like I like get punished for like, I've all the other times I've talked about unions on the show, I've been talking about like the radical unions and the radical unions were always like, what the fuck? That union won't let someone in based on their race? Fuck them. You know, mm-hmm. and I'm usually using these unions that are kind of examples of like when people are like, oh, everyone was racist at the time. And be like, not these fucking people. Fuck you. You know? Right. Uh, today. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> uh, so, anyway. Whatever. Okay, so that's our, our union that seems really cool, but it's kind of fucked up when you look under the hood. Yeah. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the systems that they set up and how it ties into tramp printing. This is, this is a real killjoy strikes again hour today with this particular episode. Um, <laughs> so if you're a printer, if you want to be a printer and you're a white kid, you start off as an apprentice. Since the whole thing is wildly old-timey, even for its day, the apprentices get called printer's devils um, mm-hmm. when they're working in the chapel under the father. Nothing. I love this language. That you <laughs> yeah. And you start at the age yeah. of like 12, or as young Ooh. as 12. And you get called a devil because you start off in the hot and toxic casting room, which is where all the damaged type gets dumped into a, quote, hell box in order to be melted down and recast. Sorry, let me back up for mm-hmm. a second. They So it's this union that excludes black people, number one, and is also like child labor is <laughs> awesome. What are you saying? <laughs> The style. Just checking. Just I want to make sure I understand everything. Uh, yeah. Where you take the children and you put them in the room with the most toxic stuff. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Are they still cleaning things with piss? I believe at this so. Point, and actually, one of the things that the union does a little bit later <laughs> is someone develops a like. Caitlin was so excited that you were like, yes. <laughs> I was like, what? Is there pee pee cleaning products? Good to know. Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> at at one point, I don't think this part's in the script. At one point, uh, the union, like, they often try to stop new technologies that are specific. I mean, a lot of the new technologies are specifically like, let's break the union and by creating these new technologies that lets us fire a bunch of workers. And I think one of the technologies they stopped was a way to clean with like these like rolling devices that didn't involve urine. Oh, okay. And then the union was like, no. We we want our piss. <laughs> um, that was probably the signs that they held up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they successfully stopped that technology. All right. So, as a as a young printer's devil, Caitlin, mm-hmm. it's your job to build up the shop fire in the morning, haul water, wash rollers and forms. Um, with piss? Yes, yes, with piss. Uh, <laughs> fold newspapers, maybe deliver the newspapers. That part seems really kind of blurry. Seems to tie into the newsies thing, and it's probably different in different places. I was going to say, the, wow, there's a lot, a lot of tie-ins. Yeah. You would also diss the type uh, as well, which means you take the used letters out and you put them back in the case, which mm-hmm. is how you learn the type cases so well, is you spend years just taking all the, like when they're done printing, you just like take out each individual letter and put it back. Mm-hmm. And the apprentices were hazed, mostly in jovial ways, because the mean part of hazing was the job. Uh-huh. You know, like uh, <laughs> hanging out in lead fumes and having a short life expectancy. Like, ah, you're yeah. 12. You're halfway done, kid. Um, <laughs> the fun hazing was that you'd like send them out for impossible tasks. This kind of shit still happens in offices and stuff. Like go find a left-handed mm-hmm. wrench or check the case for type lice or go get mm-hmm. a paper stretcher, which doesn't exist. Okay, so these these people had a sense of humor. I know, I know. I'm noticing. Uh, they actually attempted to do it in an attempt to get me to spare their lives. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. and as an apprentice, you would be exposed to basically the two types of journeyman printers, the, the more experienced printers. There's the home guard who work in a shop uh, day in and day out. They get steady paychecks. They get steady work. They get... That thing that starts with a P that you get at the end of your job, if you have a job that isn't like my job, pension. Oh, a pension? Yeah. And then there's the tramp printers. A huge percentage uh, running from 12 to 60% at different years of like, some books have like charts and shit of it, of the union printers of the IT, uh, ITU 
they would take out a travel card from the union, which was basically the right to show up at any chapel in the country and get a job. Mm-hmm. And so some printers do that for a little while, or some people do it because they want to move from one place to another every now and then. They're like, oh, fuck this job. I want to go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And then there are others, the real tramp printers, who just tramped. They just fucking rambled. Just going on the road. Road, road dogs. Yeah. An apprentice would see two distinct cultures. They would see two options in front of, of him or her, or, you know, them. If, and basically, I like to imagine it's like you're a girl in a mid-teens YA series, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, you can pick between the home guard and the tramps. They're both fighting for the same team, the union, the white supremacist organization that... Mm. That loves child labor and piss. Yes. <laughs> then, after years of hard work, most apprentices intentionally apply at the, the toughest shop in town and go work there for a little bit to kind of close out their apprenticeship by, like, proving they can. Mm. That done, they apply for a journeyman status. Journeyman status. They join the ITU, and they get a traveler's card. They get a set of clothes and some tools, and off you go on... The freight train or the river boat, it's time to wander and put words into print. But that will have to wait until part two. <gasps> I'm getting better at these cliffhangers, I think. Mm-hmm. Caitlin, how are you feeling? <laughs> I feel good. <laughs> oh, it's because you were funny. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm, not sp- I'm not spitting up blood, so there's that. Yeah. Love that. Um, Caitlin, uh, where can people follow you and or see your work? You can follow me on such social media platforms as Instagram, TikTok. Yeah, I do. (laughs) I'm kind of, I'm one of these like young hip people who's on TikTok now. And um you know, uh, Twitter, uh, long live Twitter, JK. Um, and you can follow me at all those places at Caitlin Durante and uh, check out my podcast that I co-host with Jamie Loftus called The Bechtel Cast. It is produced by a one Sophie Lichterman. Hi. Hi. <laughs> and um, we analyze movies through an intersectional feminist lens. And guess who's been a guest? It's is it me. Margaret Kiljoy. Oh my gosh, she's great. Yeah. Yeah. And she's over kind of pretentious, a little overrated. Maybe a little bit sardonic, maybe oh. a little bit ironic. <laughs> Who's to say? But ne- but never gives any of us the ick. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Uh Sophie, do you have anything you want to plug? Uh just add cool zone media and all the things. Yeah. I have a new thing to plug. Oh, my God, Margaret, you have a new thing to plug, and it's very, very well titled. Go. Yeah, thanks. So I used to plug my old book, my boring book that came out in November, but um, I have a new book coming out in February. (laughs) It's called Escape from Insel Island, and it is available through the publisher Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness, and you can pre-order it at tangledwilderness.org. And if you pre-order it, you get a poster and you also Woo. make the book industry, which is otherwise in trouble, continue a little bit because pre-orders make the world go round in a way that I Yay. wish they didn't. And it's a fiction Ooh. book. It's full of lies. Ooh. You can't trust a word in it. Oh, my gosh. Who printed it, though? Was it some No, is it evil? No, I wish. Printers? No, I like kind of... I don't feel great about the decisions that small presses sometimes have to make in terms of working with... Uh, printers that are not as ethical well actually maybe about equally ethical depending on what time period of the ITU we're talking about yeah that's what I got I will see you all on Wednesday goodbye goodbye Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff is a production of Cool Zone Media for more podcasts from Cool Zone Media visit our website coolzonemedia.com Or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Live Nation presents Concert Week. 
Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash ConcertWeek to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection, and it's really breathable so you don't get hot. That's a win-win. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 